Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Connecting Israel to Jewish communities around the world. Hello and welcome to the maiden episode of Jewish World, a podcast by World Jewish Congress Israel in Jerusalem. My name is Afat Zofer and I'm proud to be associated with the World Jewish Congress, the representative body of Jewish communities in over 100 countries worldwide. Since 1936, our mission has been to serve world Jewry and to represent Jewish communities. We act as both the parliamentary and diplomatic arms of the Jewish people, in accordance with the Talmudic dictum, Kol Yisrael Arevim Zebazeh. All Jews are responsible for one another. That means ensuring both the well-being of Jews, but also ensuring Jewish continuity. Much of our activity, sadly, is focused on combating anti-Semitism, racism, and attempts to circumscribe Jewish civil rights, as well as religious rights. And today, curiously, a subject which I never thought I'd be commenting on is sports. The world of sport has often been seen as a reflection of society. A recent and especially noteworthy example was the World Cup in Qatar. That tournament shed light on a variety of political agendas, some of which were honestly quite disturbing. Today, we will be discussing the phenomenon of anti-Semitism and hate in international sports. With us are two extraordinary guests who have very graciously agreed to share their time and insights. Israeli racewalker Shaul Adani has had the unfortunate fortune of surviving two experiences where his identity was targeted. First and foremost, the Holocaust, and then, decades later, the Munich Olympics massacre. Ladani, now 86 years old, survived as a child the Nazi bombing of his family home in Belgrade in the former Yugoslavia, fled with his parents to Hungary, hid in a monastery, but was captured and sent to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. In 1944, he was saved with his parents via the Kastner train and eventually, in 1948, at the age of 12, arrived in Israel. During World War II, he lost his grandparents, who were killed in Auschwitz. With a second degree in engineering and a PhD in business, Ladani became a professor at the Ben-Gurion University, while also developing a career as a marathon runner, and later as a racewalker. After winning numerous international competitions, Ladani received the Pierre de Coubertin Medal for the Promotion of Olympism. His 50 miles speedwalking world record, set in the early 1970s, wasn't broken until 2021. Ladani was also part of the Israeli delegation to the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich. He wore the Star of David on his shirt and said that he wanted, quote, to show the Germans that a Jew had survived. Ladani was staying in apartment two in the Olympic Village when in the early hours of September 5th, eight armed Palestinian members of Black September organization, a part of the PLO, broke in, shot and killed some of the Israeli athletes and took the others hostage. Ladani and one of his roommates managed to escape through the back door, run to a nearby building and woke the American team who alerted the police. 
Ladani is the protagonist of the documentary The Survivor, the latest film by 11 Emmy Award winner, American sports writer, television reporter and author, Jeremy Sharp. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Jeremy, your reputation precedes you. You've written several books, among them Triumph, The Untold Story of Jesse Owens, and Hitler's Olympics, directed a short documentary film about Beitar Jerusalem, and created several ESPN shows, including E60, Outside the Lines and Sports Center. The Survivor focused on Ladani as a way of telling the story of the Munich massacre in a way that's relatable to a young audience who is not really familiar with the events. Making the film, Schapp traveled to Israel and Germany and conducted an eight-hour-long interview with Ladani. Jeremy, you're quoted as saying, meeting a man who saw it with his own eyes and could tell me the story from his own personal experience was very meaningful for me because I'm Jewish. You say that every step Ladani has taken since the Holocaust was an act of defiance. Do you think that there's something inherently violent in sports, not on the field, but around it, an emphasis on nationalism or a hatred towards the other team, which manifests as a rivalry with the opposing team supporters, etc.? Well, that's an interesting question, you know, from the North American perspective, right? Um, I live uh, in North America. I cover mostly sports in North America, although, as you mentioned, I've covered Olympic Games and World Cups and international events. Um, violence is not um, something that I think is inherently part of our sports culture. When we're talking, about, I'm not talking about on the field or on the court or on the rink. I'm talking about in the stands. Um, you know, it, it's different over here. The kind of, you know, ultra fans that you see, especially in soccer in Europe, we don't have uh, in North America. Fan violence, uh, although it does exist here, is uh, rare. I would say, you know, we see um, we see violence, of course, in sports at big events uh, around the world. Um, not only when it's national teams competing against each other, but when you know there are rivals who are competing against each other. You know, some of the the rivalries that uh, you know you get in international soccer between, you know, opposing teams in the same city or in the same region uh, that, that um, lead to these, you know, horrible incidents where, where fans really feel entitled to attack each other physically. You know, fortunately, as I said, uh, here in the U.S., that's not something we really experience. So I can't say that it's, it's just baked into sports. I think it's different, you know, depending on the context, depending on where you are around the world. It's really interesting that you say that because being based here in the UK and soccer has had moments of, of violence as have in, um, in, in Europe. What about racism and anti-Semitism? Has that been manifested within sports in the US? I would say that, um, you know, when we talk about uh, racism that we still see, in arenas around the world, um, you know, some of the horrible stuff, and I did a story of this nearly two decades ago, uh, racism at the highest levels of European soccer, the terrible abuse that especially black players were subjected to. Um, 
we don't see, I, I'm not even sure it's right to say we don't see as much of that. We don't see that uh, in North American major sports. I, I, I mean, it, it happens, of course, you know, there, there, there is racism, of course, uh, that, that spills into our sports world. Um, that spills into arenas and, and, and players are subjected to it and we, and we see it, but the kind of um, constant abuse uh, that we witness, I remember um, you know, Samuel Eto'o in particular was very outspoken. He had endured so much when he was playing in Barcelona, the Cameroonian soccer player, that kind of uh, horrible stuff, you know, that, that you saw a lot of um, in Europe 20 years ago. And I'm not sure. I think, I think somewhat to a lesser degree now, um, that kind of blatant racism is certainly less commonplace uh, in North American professional sports. In terms of anti-Semitism, you know, it's different too. You know, there are teams that are historically associated with Jewish fan bases, whether it's Ajax and Amsterdam, Tottenham and London. Where, you know, when the teams travel, there are anti-Semitic chants in the stadiums, et cetera. And then, you know, when teams from Israel compete, you know, there, you can see anti-Semitism uh, manifesting itself. But in the U.S., you know, I, there, aren't, there, are a lot, there aren't a lot of incidents. I'm trying to think of any, you know, that are similar to that. And, and frankly, nothing really springs to mind. Now, if, if you go back in history, decades, I mean, the kind of racist abuse that Jackie Robinson, who was the first African-American player in Major League Baseball in the 20th century, what he had to endure, what Jewish players um, decades ago had to endure, um, you know, that was um, certainly much more prevalent decades ago. It's amazing that you mentioned the context as well. That we and this is probably an uh, uh, an arena where uh, governments or hosts of anything sports related can play some sort of steering role. I guess where in Qatar, for example, we saw Israeli um, fans being allowed into into Qatar to watch the games. So the, the, your mentioning of context is fascinating. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it it depends where you are. What's go, what the teams are involved. Are we talking about fans? Are we talking about you know? Are we talking about actions by players themselves? You know, and and, and I don't want to by any means minimize, you know, what we still see in North America in sports. And I know we've done many stories, particularly about black athletes and what they what they face. Um, uh, what they have to deal with. And you see it at all levels, from the highest level of the professional leagues um, to colleges, high schools, minor leagues. It, 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 is, um, it is definitely still there. Um, but when you see you know, what sometimes happens overseas, as we say, um, when you see the, the kind of uh, mass expressions of racism in these arenas, it's, uh, it's, it's stunning. Um, and you know, there's, there's just a different way. I think when we talk about the really ugly stuff in international sports, you mentioned, you know, national passions and rivalries and, and the way that people 
support, if that's the word you want, you want to use, their national teams outside of the U.S. is, is perhaps different. There's, there's a longer history of caring about sports in which you're constantly competing against regional or continental rivals, whereas most of the focus historically in the U.S. to a much greater degree is on our domestic leagues. If we could pivot a little to your amazing film. In your film, you told the story of the 1972 massacre through the extraordinary life and experiences of Shaul Adani, a Holocaust survivor. Do you think that the Munich events were actually anti-Semitic? They were directed against Israel. So is it not possible to define them as plainly political rather than racist? Um, you know, I think that's, that's a complicated question, right? As you said, you know, anti-Semitism versus anti-Zionism, uh, you know, what, what was going on now, clearly, you know, the targets were Israelis, um, and they were Israeli Jews. They weren't, uh, Jews from other countries. Um, clearly a statement was being made about Israel, but as you said, um, the way that anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism are inextricably linked is something that we have to you know, take into account as well. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, uh, not a scholar of these kinds of things. I'm a sports reporter. Uh, where you draw the line between what what is an anti-Semitic act and what is an anti-Zionist act, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I know that Shaul Ladani, the subject of our film, you know, who was a survivor of the Holocaust and came to Israel shortly after the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948, uh, who fought, you know, in its wars. Um, you know, he, he would think of it all as being wrapped up together. As you said, anti-Zionism being tantamount to anti-Semitism. Um, but, but it's complicated. If we were to add another, another layer to this complication... The terrorists were Palestinians, mm. and some would erroneously, in my view, argue that their agenda was not anti-Jewish, but very much connected to the Israeli-Palestinian ongoing mm. conflict. How would you respond to that? Well, it, it certainly was, um, you know, related to the uh, conflict. Uh, you know, it, you know the, the fact that, um, you know, Black September was targeting Israeli Olympic athletes uh, you know, it, it goes back to the, you know, conflict, of course, um, which at that point, you know, had been raging for decades and continues to rage now, half a century later. But we're speaking about something that happened in Germany. You know, I guess the question is, for some, would be, is this a legitimate expression of um, the conflict? And to me, athletes, competing uh, at the Olympic Games in Germany, representing their country, unarmed, asleep in their rooms, in their dormitory. You know, what happened was a crime. They were massacred. German police officer also died at the field. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm sure on the other side, uh, from the Palestinian side, the argument would be, you know, these are mostly young men. Many of them are uh, serving in the military, 
when they're at home. And that, that makes them a legitimate target. And to raise awareness of our cause, that makes it a legitimate target. To me, what happened there um, was, was simply a crime. Um, but, but certainly that's, that's from a different point of view than the Palestinian point of view. The world reacted, of course, in a way that said uh, this was wrong. And again, I'm not a scholar of the conflict between Palestine and Israel. What happened in Munich 50 years ago was, was terrible. And you're kind of showing this, what happened and the atrocity through the eyes of Shaul Adani, I think really highlighted the atrocity and the targeting of Jews, that, that we follow Shaul's journey through surviving the Holocaust and those horrendous atrocities. And there he is once again targeted. There he is once again having to flee for his life is something that really encapsulates the the horror of it all. Yeah. And that's why he was such an extraordinary person to highlight. That's right. You know, um, uh, the director I worked with, Frank Saraceno, my colleague at ESPN, you know, we, we wanted to look back at what happened 50 years ago because it was such a horrific event, an important event, and it changed... Uh, it changed the way we look at sports. It changed the way we look at the Olympics. It changed the way that we attend sports events in terms of the security that's been built up since then, the atmosphere around big international sports events. And the story of Munich, the massacre has been told many times, but you know, a story we didn't know, and as you said, you know, I've covered a lot of Olympics. Frank knows a lot about sports history and Olympic history in particular as well. And we didn't know the Shaul Ladani story. I didn't know who he was, um, although I know that he is a much uh, more familiar figure in Israel, obviously, than he is in the United States, especially for an older generation that was alive at the time of some of his more extraordinary athletic exploits. The fact that he was a Holocaust survivor and he was also a survivor of this horrific event, you know, there were these layers to his story that we thought... Um, would make him a very interesting subject. And, and it was also a perspective on Munich, on the massacre that we hadn't heard before from one of those Israeli delegation members, one of those Israeli athletes who was there, who was in the building at 31 Connolly Strasse, but survived. Um, you know, I, I, I've, you know, we've seen documentaries before about what happened on that horrible day. Uh, we certainly heard a lot from the families of those who died, figures in government who were involved in what happened that day. But I hadn't heard from one of the athletes who was there that morning. Which is what makes your viewpoint so extraordinary. We will return to Jeremy later in the podcast. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Our second guest, Daniel Asher is the special envoy for combating discrimination with the Borussia Dortmund Soccer Club. He's also the founder of What Matters, a non-profit organization that focuses on Holocaust remembrance, combating anti-Semitism, and fostering Jewish life in the areas of sports, corporations, and other organizations. He oversees the club's anti-discrimination programs for fans, employees, and sponsors since 2013, 
and his initiated visits of Borussia Dortmund's team, BVB's players, employees and fans to Auschwitz since 2011. Lerscher, who studied to become an insurance manager, was an avid fan of Borussia Dortmund, which led to his hiring by the club to set up an anti-discrimination programme. And as he says, and it just grew until I became immersed in the topic, we realised we could address fans via the club and do programmes with them together. Daniel, it's such an honour and a pleasure to have you join us. Yeah, hi from my side and thanks for having me, Efrat. Uh, it's a, a huge pleasure to be here. Is it something that other football clubs in Germany or in other places are engaged with? Or does it have anything to do with BVB having quite a few foreign players? This whole issue of, of um, racism awareness. Um, I would say that um, especially um, since 2016, the German Football League focused very much on educating uh, the supporter liaison officers in um, doing their own programs with with their football supporters, which was also um, yeah, initiated somehow by Borussia Dortmund and supported by, by us and our work. Um, but due to this, um, many other clubs also um, started programs to remember uh, persecuted football players of their club, um, remember um, persecuted Jewish people of their city. And out of this, a youth program started in, in different um, German football clubs. And it's um, really good that there's no competition at all. It's really um, a, a huge exchange, a exchange of knowledge and um, advising each other and, and helpful. And the DFL, the German Football League, is overseeing all these activities and is setting also their own um, programs in this, in this field. Um, so this is, this is the one answer. And the second answer is that, um, of course, the football field um, is a very diverse place. You can, or one could see players from different countries, from different cultural backgrounds. And I think from my perspective, football is one of the most diverse parts in society where where it's really visible that um yeah people with different um uh, backgrounds play together in the same game and it's quite easy for everybody to attend uh, even though you can't play you can talk about it and and can discuss about it it's actually quite amazing how at first glance when one thinks about football and sport it's something that we we do rec recreationally and in our spare time and one wouldn't necessarily consider the um, layers of, 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 of different aspects that do play out within f sport in general and football in particular. And, and your programs look like they, they really do um, tackle head on the, the, the different issues that, that do come up again. What sort of problems were your programs supposed to address? Um, the program is under the umbrella of United by Borussia. And the idea was to use, um, so like United of Borussia is a part of a uh, very famous song about the club, um, which says that um, United by Borussia, there are men, women, um, different religions, different um, countries. And this is the umbrella of our work. And under this umbrella, we then address directly if we, for example, if we see an incident, uh, which is a racist incident or a uh, homophobic incident or an, um, 
uh, incident in in the case of sexism, we address it directly and say united um, in Borussia uh, by Borussia united against um, racism, for example. But it also helps us to to have the umbrella work and to um, so like if we, for example, do our Holocaust um, remembrance and education programs. There's always a multi-perspective on, on different forms of discrimination. So we are able to talk about anti-Semitism, but we are also able to talk about racism, about um, um, the persecution of Sinti and Roma, for example. And it's um, yeah quite a good chance to use just the identification of football supporters with their hometown and with their with the club's hometown and with their club to address them and to talk about different perspectives. And then also in the group of participants, there's always a diversity. So one could see different people, um, very high educated people, um, normal workers. Um, yeah, different people just came together. The um, framework of this is then the club. They are all able to talk about, for example, the upcoming superstar in the midfield or the next forward, but also about um, the questions they they are facing in the society and it's really interesting to bring this uh then together and have uh yeah very very deep uh um, programs and and tough discussions about the topics but always with an exchange and always with open-minded people because the club is somehow lighting them um in this direction and how did the fans initially react because it's it's a lot of of depth to the program yeah, it's um, uh, th- there were different reactions, <laughs> to be honest. Um, uh, I would say like the first initiative really came by supporters and they did the first programs against racism and against discrimination. And um, it was then brought to the club um, and the club took over this um, clear statements um, in this field. And now it's really working hand in hand. But of course, there are also supporters which are really not happy about that. Um, we have had, um, when Borussia Dortmund donated um, to Yad Vashem in 2019, there were members who quitted their uh, membership at the club. And uh, we as a club then decided to say, okay, it's good if they quit because if they don't can um, confirm on our values, um, it's even better if they don't support us anymore. And I think on the one hand, it was important to have this clear statement, but on the other hand, it was really important to really stand clear to our values when it comes then to to uh, real reactions. And the most of the supporters are quite open to it and support it. And um, I think a football club can really be an institution that gives orientation in this field and that um, yeah creates values without creating um, party politics. I guess it took a lot of bravery on behalf of the leadership of the team to uh, allow the um, the detractors to kind of fall away. And I understand that many people wish to take part in the Auschwitz visits, so much so that you actually had to turn people down. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, it's kind of the lighting towers or I don't know what, uh, like, yeah, one of the most important programs we have every year and um, we we now do it since um, 2011 and we visiting the memorial site in Auschwitz but also places that are not connected to the memorial nowadays but that were connected to the 
um, to the camp Auschwitz, uh, to concentration camp Auschwitz in, uh, in the wartime. Um, we visiting Auschwitzim for seven days uh, with our supporters and uh, they pay just uh, 50 euros to participate. It's an open call for participation. Um, every supporter can apply. Um, and what, what turns out is that the interest is so huge that we aren't able to handle it anymore because we have about 120 to 150 applications for about 30 participants. Um, so the program starts in Dortmund and we are looking at places that we usually pass by in our uh, normal life, um, but we don't know or one don't know what, what uh, happened there uh, back in the, in the Second World War time. So... Uh, for example, the train station, uh, former train station where the Jews from Dortmund were deported from is now more or less just a construction site. One couldn't see anything there anymore without a small pledge, but people just pass by by car and uh, don't know what, what kind of places are connected um, there. But we also have the sapling stones in Dortmund, for example, where Uh, many supporters clean them every year um, in front of houses of uh, persecuted Jews and and killed Jews in in the in the Shoah. Um, so there are connection points, but then for us it's very important to go the next step and talk not just about like they were brought to to Auschwitz, but also visiting then Auschwitz and start the program on the the former ramp where the Jews arrived, um, especially the Jews from Dortmund, and then bring it to a wider view and talk about the history of the camp, the perpetrators in the camp, um, who were responsible, um, who were all needed to create this, uh, this crime and also have a view on histories and, and stories of victims, but also survivors and the different um, um, people that were um, in Auschwitz, the different groups that were like the groups created by Nazis. Um, And so giving the supporters a, a huge view on, on this topic, this is like an, from the historical side or from the, from the side of, of education, very important to understand what happened in the past. But also for us, it's very important to talk to the group of supporters in this week. And to, like in every program, people are asking, how would I have behaved in, back uh, in 1940 to 1945? And we always turn it around and ask them, okay, it's the wrong question because we know the end. We know what happened. We know we are very well informed and educated. But what we, what is necessary to ask is how do we behave and how do we behave as a club and as supporters? And we all together, how do we behave nowadays and how, what impact can we create, um, in the small field of, of sports, but then even beyond because we are all part of the society. And this is very, very interesting um, to bring these people together in this situation and create such, um, yeah, more or less safe spaces where people really can ask questions, where people can discuss with others they don't know before. And the only common thing is that they all have um, this um, yeah, love for the same club. And this is really interesting to see. And the interest is huge. And we have this program in Auschwitz and we have it like for supporters, but we also have a four day program for employees and the employees of our sponsors. So we really also involve the area of sponsors, which are more important uh, nowadays in, in football than before. And we also have a program in the not so well known places, like the more or less forgotten places of the Holocaust. And we 
we are visiting um, Eastern Poland, especially um, with a uh, special view on one deportation from Dortmund to Zamosht. And uh, we are visiting the memorial sites in Belgiets and in Sobibor, um, but also former ghetto, ghettos. And um, yeah, have a look there. And it's not um, like Auschwitz is really known by, by everybody, but for us, it's also important to have a few on the sites that are not that well known. What's extraordinary um, that comes to mind to me is how it, your club has such huge knock-on effects where it really is the epitome of, of think globally, act locally, in that, um, in that you're really creating this safe space for your club and your, your supporters and your sponsors and your employees is, is to... First of all, raise awareness to make them aware of, uh, of of the fact that that atrocities can happen anywhere unless we are aware. They they can happen in the most everyday places, like a train station, and to see the knock on international effects of of what you're doing. And personally, I think it should be the, a prototype of uh, to to many many other clubs. Can you yourself feel the effect of those programs beyond the football pitch? It's difficult to measure, to be honest. Um, but I, I really think that um, football clubs have the possibility to create change and to be part, a, a positive part of the society. So if Borussia Dortmund is doing a statement on social media, it's seen by millions of people. And these people are all parts of different parts of the society. So they all belong to society and they all see kind of an, yeah, like, like we can, in common, we can create a change. And I see it that, that, um, from this perspective, it's really important that football clubs don't see it's just as sport clubs. Um, it's even more at the moment from my perspective. And on the other hand, I also see it when it comes to person of color or when it comes to Jewish people, if they see there is a club who is doing something like that and like the sign from the club is that you can feel welcome here and here's a place where you can be without uh, fear and I think this is important as well so like in two directions and uh, one could also add a third direction um, the direction of offenders and perpetrators like your behavior is not welcome here and if you behave like that you don't belong to us so th th this is like from my perspective quite clear that if clubs do clear statements and um, yeah, when it when it's really not just statements and you, one could really feel it, it can create a change. And what we can see is that people are attending our um, events and um, yeah, they are so different. And it's so interesting to see that schoolers and elderly and like we are not focusing only on, on young people because we can really address um, every age group. And, and this is so interesting because very often when we see problems, um, or when one see problems, people always say, yeah, like, yeah, we, we must educate the young people, but especially due to Corona, one could see that it wasn't young people demonstrating with antisemitic narratives on, on the streets. It was people in the age of 40, 50 or 60. So I, I think uh, football has a really powerful, um, situation there. And, it's a responsibility out of this. This sense of responsibility is extraordinary. And the role that education plays in it is so amazing in that 
we may even have a situation where the young people can model for the older generations what is acceptable and what is not acceptable anymore. And that's thanks to you. Thank you. What is really important to me to point out is that um, for me, the our Holocaust educational programs are in in general, Holocaust education to learn about different forms of discrimination, about anti-Semitism. It's not something like a wonderful um, vocation on a wonderful island, which one has on his bucket list and he just need to cross it once and then it's done for, for the whole life. It's more like to learn about it, to renew and to refresh what, what once was learned about it and to create a safe space or a space where people can discuss things like that, this would really solve problems and really helps to create a common understanding on how we would like to live together and how we create a positive future for everybody. This would really solve a lot of things. This is yeah, important for me to point out. We're back with Jeremy Sharp. Here's another clip from The Survivor, his documentary about the Israeli race walker Shaul Adani. Only one Israeli survivor has long been critical of the decision to leave. Wrong decisions. I argued that the Israeli flag decorated with the black should parade at the closing ceremony. Following the massacre, the Olympic Committee decided, very controversially, to resume the Games. Jeremy, do you think that that was the right decision? I think that's, that's a tough one. Now, certainly, you know, at the time, there were so many um, voices, important voices, who thought it was the wrong decision to continue the games after I think it ended up being about a 24-hour break. I remember the games didn't even get paused until late in the afternoon after the hostages had been taken um, and two Israelis had already been murdered. And then they had a memorial service the next morning and then it was sometime later that afternoon where competition resumed, I think. Uh, and, you know, I... <laughs> It seems to me um, that the better thing to do would have been to say, you know what, um, enough. This is enough. Uh, after what has happened here, we cannot go on. We cannot continue to play these games. I think that would have been the right and the humane decision. Interestingly, as you know, having seen the film, Shaul doesn't feel that way. That was amazing. And one of the most striking parts for me of, of, the, of the film, when Shaul talks about following the Munich massacre, that was one of the most striking parts of the whole film. It, right. And, and I was surprised when, you know, I read it in his memoir and then, you know, said, well, this is something obviously we have to talk to him about. You know, the idea never occurred to me, frankly, that anyone who was part of the Israeli delegation would have felt that uh, the Israelis should have stuck around after what happened and continued to compete and to have marched in the closing ceremony uh, several days later. You know, that, that, but that 
you know, tells you so much about who, who Shaul Adani is. And I think it probably tells you a lot um, about people of his generation in Israel as well. Uh, you know, especially survivors, especially people who came over after the Holocaust in Europe uh, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, whatever it might have been, and, and were part of um, building this young state of Israel and who felt that whatever the challenges might be, whatever obstacles were put in their path, you keep going. And with Shaul, uh, th that's also, you know, a metaphor um, for what he literally does as an athlete, you know, a race walker, the longest races at the Olympics, they, you know, the, you know, the 50 kilometer walk, you know, more than 30 miles uh, where you just keep going. And to hear him talk about that, you know, that he thought going home was surrender. Uh, that was powerful. I still hold up today that our re retreat was totally wrong. I never retreat. Absolutely. And for me, visually, the, the part where he said that the Israeli flag should have been in the closing ceremony with a black, yeah. I think he said a, a black ribbon or a black yes. something just I guess in a way he said that we, we mustn't hide and we mustn't, we just keep going, which was very, very inspiring. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, that's who he is, right? You keep going. Amazing. And since you know Shaul so well, do you think that Shaul would still believe that sports can bring different people together? Oh, 100%, as we say, 100%. He is a very, he is someone... I, I'll say this about Joel, and one of the most interesting things I thought that he said, which closes the film, I said, you know, people, when they hear a story, they say, well, how, how did you keep getting up every morning? How do you get up every morning after all that you've seen, all that you've been through, all of these nightmares and maintain, I mean, this, this is too weak a way of putting it, positivity. You know, it's more than positivity. It's, it's, it's inspirational the way that um, he keeps going amassing achievements. And he said he's able to do it because he's able to, let me put it the right way. I don't want to put words in his mouth. What he said was because he does not hate. He's able to not allow the bad things that he's seen, that he's witnessed, that have happened to him to, uh, to ruin the rest of his life, that he can go on. And, and, and in terms of sport, how I'm connecting it back to that, said, you know, Shaul went all over the world before and after Munich to compete as an Israeli all over the world as an elite race walker. And he made friends everywhere he went. You know, he went to Germany all the time after having been in a concentration camp in Germany in his youth. He, he goes, you know, he, he, um, he's made friends all over the world. Uh, he believes, if anyone believes in the power, the positive power of sport, of bringing people together from different countries, from different races, from different religions, from different societies, I would think that it's Shaul. And he has this network of friends all over the world who, you know, he's remained in touch with for, you know, since the 1960s. You know, he's 86. He's been doing this, traveling all over the world. He'll, you know, he's, I don't know how many miles he's flown all over the world. 
competing in events, but it's a lot. <laughs> and, you know, he has this, uh, I don't know how active it is now that he's 86, but for a long time, you know, he was in opposition. He, he was at odds with the Israeli sports establishment and the track and field establishment. And a lot of it was about, you know, they're not supporting him the way that he felt he should be supported, especially financially. And, and, um, you know, they wouldn't send him where he wanted to be sent. You know, they, they're like, oh, it's just race walking, right? Well, <laughs> he's pretty good. And, and as far as I know, he's the first Israeli world champion in any athletics event, or as we say here in the U.S. track and field event. Um, and, and so he felt they treated him with disrespect. And uh, part of that is because he wanted to continue to, you know, compete and to see the world and to meet other people. And he's someone who, uh, because of his unique character and energy, has has maintained these friendships. It's absolutely extraordinary. And thank you so much for introducing us to him. If I may, just one final question. Sure. Um, since we're dealing with, with um, kind of today's challenges yeah. and um, issues in sports, how do you think Shaul would... Um, respond to the presence of anti-Semitism and racism in sports today? What would be his approach to um, to battling it within the sports field? Well, I think it's his approach to um, battling it anywhere that he confronts it. Racism, anti-Semitism is to call it out, um, is to confront it, um, not to minimize it. Uh, you know, that's... That's always um, been his philosophy. And that's why, you know, he's written a book. That's why he lectures, you know, all over the world. That's why he agreed to do this film because the message of his life um, is that you, you must stand up to hate. And you can't let it destroy you. But you have to confront it. You can't ignore it. When it exists and it's there, you call it out. And I think, uh, well, I know that's, you know, what he what he believes. You know, when he when he went back to Munich uh, for the 50th anniversary, for the commemorations, you know, he, he's there. You know, he's doing these things. He's traveling. He's going to these places because he he understands the importance of of making people aware of what happened so that it doesn't happen again. And may he continue to do so and may his legacy of building friendships and connections as a true survivor go from strength to strength. I would like to sincerely thank both of our guests for joining us. Daniel, thank you so much to you and to your club for truly being a lighthouse in, in this area and for being a, a model. And uh, this is something that clubs around the world could would do well to um, see you as an inspiration thank you so much for all of your work and for joining us and for shedding light on all of the brilliant initiatives that you have and the change that you're making thank you Everett. it was my pleasure to be here jeremy thank you so much for introducing us properly to shaul and for joining us today and for creating your beautiful film Thank you so much for the kind words. And I would like to thank you for tuning in and invite you to join us and subscribe to the WJC podcast series. 
I'm Eflat Safel. Thank you so much. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Jewish World is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and more. Subscribe for updates on new episodes.